All right, hello and welcome back to episode two here of Shardboard of the Rings. Uh, thanks for, for coming back and checking us out again, or maybe your podcast player just downloaded it and you're accidentally listening again and haven't quite gotten to hitting the pause button yet. We appreciate it either way. Um, I am going to be one of your hosts again today. This is uh, Eric, and with me again are my my same two cohorts from the first Shardboard of the Rings episode. So uh, first off, Mark, secondhand Tuke. How you doing tonight, Mark? I'm doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. Good, good. And then also Matt, uh, Cat Attack. How are you doing tonight, Matt? Pretty good as well. Good. Thank you guys again for, for clearing out some time. It's always fun trying to wrangle people in, in three different time zones to, to get to do these <laughs> sorts of things. At least we're all U.S. time zones. <laughs> That's true. That is true. <laughs> So yeah, tonight uh, we are going to be kind of diving in to some conversation topics that we had to cut from our first episode due to due to the length of time of that one. But then also, the the year of Sanderson, as he has called it, has officially started with the first book of his secret project kicking off. Um, this was Tress of the Emerald Sea. Um, so I don't know, one of you for those of people out there that might not be familiar can give kind of a brief overview of what, of how this project came into being like the Kickstarter and everything like that. Um, if, if either of you think you can nail that down somewhat succinctly. Matt, I'll throw that to you. All right. All right. So for those who don't know, during COVID Brandon got a bunch of time back from touring because he couldn't go anywhere, which Brandon has said multiple times that he relaxes by writing. So he ended up writing four novels to relax during COVID. <laughs> the yeah. COVID pandemic for those listening in the future. And he did a spectacular social media announcement. If you have not seen it, go on YouTube and watch it because his reveal and everything is just fantastic. And he does lots of great videos during the whole Kickstarter campaign. Uh, but then he decided uh, originally these were novels were just for like his wife and his friends to read. And then he decided to go ahead and publish them. And he decided to do Kickstarter uh, to test the waters into self-publishing as an alternative to Amazon. Uh, he also explains in one of his videos about the impact Amazon can have on his uh, business when Amazon decides to fight with the publishers and delist his books. So, you know, Brandon has proven himself to be pretty savvy about how he markets his books and everything else. And this just, the Kickstarter was just another extension of that. Be like, all right, I'm going to try this and make sure I'm diversified and, uh, in, strike out on my own if I need to. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty much the year of Sanderson in a nutshell. Yeah. So he's, he's releasing a book uh, every quarter this year, uh, starting basically January one, he, he dropped all these ebook files and audiobook files into our emails for those that backed the Kickstarter. And then is releasing the books uh, to non Kickstarter backers, you know, a few weeks later throughout the year. So yeah, we'll have four books to talk about. Uh, and this first one happened to be a Cosmere novel. Uh, I think three of the four of them are. Mm -hmm. And Correct. so as we're talking Tress and the Emerald Sea here, much like with 
our discussion of the final Era 2 Mistborn book last time, this this is going to be full Cosmere spoilers. Like, I, I think I would say that there are less Cosmere implications in this one than that were in The Lost Metal, uh, but there was a, there's a lot of, like, interesting things where who knows where we might be hopping back and forth and around to, so... Just kind of a blanket spoiler warning. I would not recommend checking this out unless you have read the majority of the of Sanderson's work, right? I think you could read it without a lot of Sanderson's work, but you would miss a lot of Easter eggs and such because it's definitely definitely a lot of things to pick up on in this one. Oh, right. Yeah, and we'll get into that discussion topic here in a little bit. Yeah, you could definitely read it without doing it. I would say don't listen to us here to, right. <laughs> on the yeah. podcast talking about it because uh, oh, no, who knows not. what we might say. Yeah, we're going to spoil a ton of stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we'll just kick it off right into Tress and the Emerald Sea here since we don't need to do quite as much preamble as we did last time. Uh, we'll kick to you here, Mark, first. What what were your overall thoughts on, on this book? Positive, negative? You know, just kind of the elevator pitch of why you did or didn't like it. Yeah, uh, I really liked it. I I think the biggest strength of this is the fact that it's like a late middle school, early high school reading level. It's nice that you can enjoy a Cosmere book without, like, say, reading Stormlight Archive mm-hmm. or or even like the novellas, which are fun, but they're almost too short sometimes. And I think this scratches a good itch of like, you know, getting like a Sanderson fix without either getting too much or too little. And I think he really nailed um, the tone. You know, he he referenced that this is like a Princess Bride inspired uh, story with kind of like the gender roles a little swapped with the female uh, character being more of the the action oriented character. Um, though, I guess are we are we going to go right into spoiling the book, too? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, but I, I do like that hindsight uh, as well. The the male protagonist is also pretty action oriented. You just don't know that he's the male protagonist uh, until the end because he's the you know he's been the mouse the whole time. But um, no, I, I really enjoyed the the whimsy. You know, I, I wrote here it's like part Treasure Island, part Princess Bride, and I think those are especially like Treasure Island. Those are stories that could certainly use like you know I don't need to see a Treasure Island remake anymore. Uh, or read a remake, but I'm certainly, I like when people kind of go back to that well uh, and come up with ideas. And uh, I really enjoyed the Cosmere implications, and I'll hold some of those thoughts until we get there. And I also really enjoyed Hoyt as a narrator. Mm-hmm. I think I was pretty neutral, like I didn't have an opinion. And at the end of it, I I was afraid it could be too much, because this is very much like Hoyt in Stormlight. Like, it's almost like wit. <laughs> the wit version of void is talking uh and i didn't get annoyed like by the end of the book i was like perfectly okay with his delivery yeah yeah i'm with you i i was actually one of the reasons this was the most exciting cosmere or the ex- most exciting of these four projects to me before reading any of them was because of the hoid piece and i think he did it really well also like i i think there could have been you know, an idea of having Hoyd interjecting too much with his parentheticals and side thoughts like he <laughs> sometimes does. And I, I think Brandon did a really good job of, like, making sure that we remembered that Hoyd was telling this story and those sorts of things without feeling like I got annoyed with his little 
interjections. Like, obviously, you're kind of supposed to in Stormlight get annoyed with him uh, because you're <laughs> reading from, like, Kaladin's perspective, who thinks mm-hmm. he's very annoying. <laughs> yeah, how uh, about you, yeah. Matt? I was going to say, I, I agree. I really enjoyed the Hoyd narration. Although, I will say, I listened to Brandon read the sample chapters before the book came out, and I had kind of forgotten that Hoyd was the narrator when I jumped back into the book. And so I had kind of skimmed the chapters and jumped ahead. And I was like, this sounds very different from a usual Brandon Sanderson book. And then I think it took a couple of Hoyd interjections to go, Oh, or no, it was, he introduced himself as a cat. I was like, oh, right. Hoyt is the narrator. Mm-hmm. I was like, that's it. Okay. I'm on the page now with what's going on. But yeah, I, it definitely is like, oh, yeah, he could easily get too annoyed, but the, the asides were paced very, very well, where it's like, okay, it takes a long time for him to interject with something. I, in fact, one of my favorites is the, uh, it's like, where he asked himself a rhetorical question about the story. And he's like, I'd like to thank you for st- to stop interrupting, please. It's <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like, oh, that was really good. <laughs> this is kind of a dad joke. I would appreciate buried in there. Yeah. <laughs> um, but getting back to overall, I really enjoyed the story. I'm not usually into the pirate themes and everything else, but the, the fairy tale tone and stuff really got me in. And then like, as soon as we were talking about the fluid spore seas, I was really interested in that mechanically. And then they just kind of kept building on it throughout the story into how their technology works. And I was all there for that. It's like, this is the kind of stuff I've been wanting from the Cosmere where we see more of, Hey, how about we, how do we, mechanicize this magic to do different things yeah you know i'll I'll say like i'm not really i know sanderson is known as like a hard magic writer and i'm usually not there for the hard magic systems i probably would be more on like the the soft magic side but i did find myself really enjoying like when they kind of make their way to gunpowder i think i forget which spore um you could tell like zephyr spores yeah I, I was like, okay, I'm I'm really into the you know, and the 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 rosite being used as like mortar. I don't know. This world for some reason really clicked with me uh in the mechanics where I normally just kind of, you know, I enjoy it, but I don't like sink my teeth into it. And I'm a I agree with you one hundred percent there. And I my hypothesis on this, at least for myself, is that this is the first Sanderson book in a while that we have gotten an introduction to like an entirely new magic system kind of from the ground up. So a lot of what we've been reading from his hard magic, you know, science things at this point has been, you know, like the really in-depth discussions of anti-void light and that sort of stuff in Stormlight (laughs) 4. Or, you know, we can have a 30-page long fight in the Mistborn series where he's doing all sorts of crazy weird things with time bubbles and you have this huge base of knowledge whereas this one you come in there knowing nothing and he really did a good job of you know like he usually does of of building up the knowledge but then it never got too crazy because it was still just the first book like i could see 
somebody carrying around 12 bags of spores some point in the future doing all sorts of weird things but in here that didn't really happen it, it, it all kept it pretty simple mechanically i think on um, as were you talking about the soft preferring soft magic and everything else like this one got more into intent again kind of like warbreaker with uh i think it's awakening where they put the breaths mm-hmm. in and there's some mechanics to that, but the intent is a big deal. Uh, something I kind of note about the magic system is like that, that part feels very soft to me where it's like, okay, you really have to think about what you want to do or what you want the magic to do. It's not something you can just, you know, uh, direct with uh, the tools and stuff at hand. You know, we got a little bit of that when she started learning the sp- sprouting stuff where it's like okay here i need this steel trowel to pull it right or kind of push it away over here and i can pull it to this flat iron plate or shield and they'll hold it in place there kind of thing but then later it's much more of oh i can make the vine grow this direction and everything else just by being near it and thinking about it and the reason that a lot of things go wrong is that people are all panicking about what's going on when these spores activate. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. It was nice to see, even though Aethers, as far as we know, and people in the Cosmere think that they existed pre shattering, so aren't necessarily tied to any of those Shardic magic systems there's still a lot of things that function very similarly with them to what we've seen. Like you talked about the steel and the iron, but then the intent portions as well, um, which, which I find pretty fascinating that the Aethers um, respond similarly since at least as far as we understand, they don't have anything to do with any of the other 16 shards magic systems. Right. And then, also, there's a lot of implications with this one that metals have kind of universal properties across the Cosmere, right? Because aluminum is not just blocking mm-hmm. emotional allomancy, but it's blocking uh, blocking anything from killing the spores. Silver will kill them, kind of like how it uh, is an anathema to the cognitive shadows on Threadney. And then... We have the iron pulling and the steel pushing still going on like Mistborn. So that part I was like, wow, that's a really interesting, deep Cosmere connection <laughs> underlying everything. But to your point, like even if the Aethers are pre-shards, there seems to be some sort of univer- universal magic underpinnings to, to magic, just how it exists. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to circle back to something that Mark brought up briefly there with, with Brandon obviously talking about this being a princess bride sort of thing. Um, so obviously the the idea of like pirates and, and losing the, the loved one and going on the mission and sort of thing is kind of the, the big thing. But I was trying to, while reading the book, to pick up on other sorts of things. And the couple that I mostly picked up on as like nods to it was obviously Fort being like the biggest human being ever as a reference to Andre the Giant there in the movie. Mm, mm-hmm. And then there are not rodents of unusual size necessarily in this one, but definitely an unusual rodent. <laughs> uh, and then I saw her getting 
poison, and that one's a bit of a stretch because poison happens in all of them. But those were like kind of the three main like plot points that I remember from the Princess Bride from the last time that I watched it that showed up as probably a, a Sanderson nod to it to to try to get a couple more Princess Bride references in there. Were there any others that either of you picked up on? No, I didn't pick up on Fort, and it seems so obvious when you say that. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think if there was even like an Inigo Montoya. Well, that's what I was gonna say. There's no, there's no six fingered man, or nobody's dad died that I can remember. So, and no one like has a line that they keep repeating. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess Sele is searching for her father across the seas. That's getting into stretching, a right? Bit. Uh, I, the other stretch I could think of is the, you know, talking about the poison scene. It's a battle of wits, really, between the two of them. And you get that with the dragon later on. The <laughs> captain and Tress are having the battle of wits and persuasion with the dragon to be, you know, whether they're relative, uh, where the relative arguments to keeping the captain and letting Tress go or keeping trust and letting the captain go. Yeah, I could buy that. I don't know if it's like a direct Easter egg, but I'd say just the campiness is certainly mm-hmm. like, like just throughout, like I, who's the, uh, oh, I think we just mentioned her. Who's like bad at shooting. Like they're like, she's so bad and... at fire. Yeah. That they like go like, you can't even stand behind her. Her aim is so bad. And that just kind of, I feel like is the same level of humor. Like, I, I don't know how you actually, it's great for a book. I don't know if you could always sell it in a movie. Obviously, The Princess Bride did it well, but I think that could be one, too. Just some of the the absurdity. Yeah. Yeah. The funny mm-hmm. absurdity was really, really worked for me in this book. Um, there were multiple points where, like, I actually laughed out loud while I was sitting on the couch reading. And my wife was like, what? In the Like, you know, like, why are you laughing that hard at a book? Mm-hmm. Um, which is funny because Sanderson's sense of humor is probably one of my least favorite things about a lot of his books. Cause sometimes it does just feel a slight bit forced like Shalon and stormlight one. And then Matt Ooh. in his wheel of time books are really big shining examples to me of me just thinking he didn't get it quite right. But I think, yeah, the tone of this book made his like humor just really work for me. I laughed a lot in this one. Yep. Uh, I really appreciate the humor in this one. Obviously, as uh, talking about voids, I'd like kindly stop stop you for interrupting me. And uh... right, there and was just the... even Hoyd being cursed and mm-hmm. his wacky interjections and things. And some of that kind of was a little forced, especially with his like lack of decorum and his trying to be fashion forward, but. Even that, it's like, okay, it's just, you know, you you need a little bit of levity sometimes, too, with the, the whole situation. Because Tress, basically, once she gets on the sea, just keeps plunging deeper and deeper into danger. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. The the two that really got me were the, the obvious call-outs to the readers. Um, <laughs> you know, like the him talking about the, the knife or the... The, the metal pushing and pulling like yes this one yep. is steel for those of you that have to know uh <laughs> would do this but the the one that made me laugh the hardest by far was i spent the first half of the book being like what in the world happens when it rains on this planet like that sounds like torture and then we get the line you know 
as they enter the Crimson Sea about it being like, for all you like nerds out there that are worried about meteorological patterns, go get a life. <laughs> like <laughs> it's just uh, very called out on that one. Um, Cause I, I was wondering and he explained it and made fun of me at the same time. That, so yeah, that, that, those are my yeah. favorite lines from Hoyd is those two call out to the readers. <laughs> yeah. It's fun to be able to do that. Cause like, Again, you're just talking about the campiness, like without the narration of somebody telling a story, uh, which, you know, it, it's done sometimes in, in fiction. We've all talked about the the King Killer Chronicles that like in theory could do that as well with the, that sort of told narrative. But uh, it was a literary device that I have not seen used very often in books that I've read that I very much appreciated. Yeah, there's like a, a scene in uh, like the same level. There's like a scene in Blazing Saddles where the villain is like monologuing to himself and he's like, how do I do this? How do I do that? Where do I go? And then he looks up at the camera and he's like, why am I asking you? Uh, like to the, and I feel like Hoy, like it's like the same kind of, like it's not like Deadpool fourth wall breaking. It's a little scaled back, I think for, for the better. Yeah. So we've been talking, you know, a lot of, uh, uh, stuff kind of Cosmere related here in addition to just the book itself. Uh, and we mentioned it slightly earlier, but Matt, do you think this is a good book that somebody could read without being super into the Cosmere? Because, you know, we talked about Lost Metal with the gloves being off now as his yeah. thought there, like you can't anymore. But this one, maybe, maybe you can? I think maybe you can, because even though it's very obviously a post lost metal where they're like visitors from the stars and they're not freaking out about it. Like you, you know, the typical like alien from outer space mm -hmm. type of thing. Like, you know, Tress is, you know, somebody who grew up on the planet. She's learning about the wider world as she goes along. Um, so you're getting, you're learning about the planet with her, but it still right. feels like the wider Cosmere implications could just be like, Oh, okay. Well, there's, there's other planets out there. They have some strange things. You know, it's kind of like, oh, well, if I wanted to learn more about that, I might read the other books and see if they relate. But they don't, you know, call them out necessarily as like, oh, Ulam is a Chandra. He comes from Cell. And <laughs> there's not, yeah. a lot of references to the other shards directly. Yeah, there's, we have a dragon that we know from reading 17 shards stuff that dragons are kind of everywhere in the Cosmere and very long lived and uh, have some ties to the beginnings of the di 16 different shards, but they're still pretty mysterious even then. Yeah. I think the only thing that might, might be like, it's not a spoiler, but it would certainly have your guard up is Hoyd mentioning Sazed and mentioning the Chandra, but it's also such a throwaway line. It's like he's his name is mentioned once in an aside about Ulam that I think if you were getting into the Cosmere, you probably wouldn't even like recognize the word or even like pay any mind to it. But other than that, I don't think there's anything that would like spoil anything like even if you were like say say you read mistborn next and you forget about says it and you realize ulam is a contra it doesn't take anything away from it i think mm -hmm. my my only hesitation is i think 90 percent of the book works pretty well 
as a, a standalone, like read just read it if you like fantasy and want to read something fun and funny. The ending to me, I'm not sure how I think it would work with when it kind of comes to a head that like the entire point of Hoyd being there is that he wants Elantrian magic and that the sorceress was, you know, an Elantrian from the ire, uh, you know, who have been going around doing all these sorts of things. Like, and maybe that's just me thinking too much into it. Maybe somebody reading the book without the foreknowledge, it can get by with just being like, Hoyd wanted the sorceress's powers, whatever they were. And, you know, she came on a spaceship. But but her specific goal and Hoyd's specific goal with her, uh, you know, with him trying to collect all these shardic powers was much more like Cosmere tied than I think the rest of the book was, which might make it a little unsatisfying for an ending for somebody that was only reading this one. I wonder if it could like clue you in to Hoyd, like say this is like your first book, which, mm-hmm. you know, certainly be like, cause then, you know, if you see Hoyd, like say you read this book and then you jump into Stormlight, you might be like, oh, is Hoyd here to get uh, a radiant ability? I, I'd be curious, like if it's a good setup, um, like you would really be on the lookout for Hoyd, I guess. Yeah. Whereas I don't think if you were into like the words of Brandon and into like the, the community for lack of a better term, I don't know if you'd really like be aware of Hoyd too much. Not um, until Stormlight, at least. Yeah, definitely not. Right. Uh, well, I think mm-hmm. even um, not until late Stormlight, I guess. Yeah. But I think even like the Mistborn books, I think like he's almost like a blinking, like I would have to like go back to a chapter and be like, wait, did he actually say Hoyt? And then I, you know, like I'm pretending like I'm reading this for the first time. And then I would go into Stormlight and be like, wait, his name was Hoyt, right? And, but I guess like, again, who am I kidding? It's the age of the internet. So, you know, anybody can look it up and then, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's hard to avoid the online community. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I remember that's how I got clued into Hoyt is not that I picked it up on reading. It was, oh, I started reading about the Cosmere connections after reading, I think the Mistborn trilogy. And they're like, Oh, well, Hoyd shows up in all the books and he's here, here and here. And I had to go really look in Mistborn for the mentions. And like the third book, it's not, they don't even think they call him by name. It's that Vin is going to meet a beggar informer and it was Hoyd, but it wasn't specifically said to be Hoyd. It was like confirmed later that it was right. And she didn't even meet him because as we found out in secret history, Kelsier was there. He's screaming at her to not talk to Hoyd. And so she felt something weird about him and decided not to go. <laughs> right. Which is, yeah. So he, you definitely wouldn't know what your, what that was unless you were accidentally stumbling upon the copper mind. I think. Thinking about like the Cosmere crossover and trying to ignore like words of Brandon and whatnot. Is this kind of the first inkling that, I, oh, I guess there's also Dawn Shard. I'm actually trying to think of like how many books actually reference the Shattering, mm. and I I know like we obviously know Hoyt and like 16 other people, but like I think this is the first time someone's explicitly. I guess you don't know the implications, but Hoyt said you know him and 16 other people uh, did this thing, and I'm trying to think I, if that's like the first time in the book this is in, in a book this has been called out. I mean, they mentioned like Hoyt has had his chance to have pick up divinity and like all that, but I. I'm just curious. I'm just inter- and thinking about it out loud. And like, I don't think we've ever like indicated that 16 people were involved in some sort of act with Hoyt before on paper. And it's funny that it's in this book. I have to look at some sure. of the letters. That's a good question. Um, Cause 
Yeah. I mean, we've just taken for granted that that's what happened for years, thanks to words of Brandon, that I don't know offhand. Like, we've heard the term shattering um, and, you know, adenalcium before, but I don't know that we have explicitly been told that a shattering with 17 people took place. And I guess this isn't even the full thing, too, because you're like, oh, Hoy did something with 16 people. And then and then, then I guess if you were to like read Stormlight and then someone says, oh, you had your chance to pick up Divinity and you didn't, then someone might be like, oh, OK, well, maybe this relates to that weird line that Hoyt said <laughs> in Tress. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed yeah. the Easter eggs. I, I, I would I this would be, probably be a fun book to like go back and discover the Easter eggs if you weren't clued into the Cosmere. It probably would be. Yeah, and I think that we'll we'll kind of move on to that. And that is kind of our next topic here of conversation: is what were the the Cosmere Easter eggs or implications that were most exciting to us there? And I think I'll just start us off since it did get mentioned was with the shattering one, um, where because he brought up the shattering in his narrative, talking about you know people telling somebody that they're doing something for their own good, typically means that they don't trust that person. Like, I don't trust you to make decisions, so I'm doing this for your own good. Um, And this is definitely the first time that we've been given 100% confirmation that the group that did the shattering did it without, like, cooperation and consent from (laughs) uh, right? Like, this is 100% this group of 17 people went out to do it because they thought it needed to be done. Not because that being was working with them and wanted to give up power, which was a bit of a source of like theory crafting and stuff for the community prior to this. I hadn't realized that was a, a topic of debate. I kind of assumed that it was like, especially since it kind of was always in reference to, there's a story to how out the shattering and how it happened. I kind of always imagined it was a conspiracy mm-hmm. to we need to do this sort of thing. Yeah, um, that's definitely how I I thought of it as well. But like I said, we just hadn't we we weren't sure because it hasn't been talked about on page, um, and and now it has. I like the implication, like given like when it happens in the story, because it's when is when you know Huck betrays. Tress mm-hmm. and he says, you know, it was for your great, great, uh, for the, you know, for your own good. And since Hoyt kind of brings it up, like in this scene, I almost like we don't quite know. Correct me if I'm wrong. Like where pretty much any, but any of the seventeen stand, and like some people are probably happy that they're shards. I'm sure. Um, but like I got regret from Hoyt about like the shattering. Mm-hmm. Like, like I feel like for him to bring this up right after like watching Huck really like fall low. Um, I get the implication that like Hoyd thought the shattering was a mistake, or at least how they went about it might have been a mistake. Uh, I don't know. And of course, we'll find out in thirty years when we get to that <laughs> book. But 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 I enjoyed that. We don't really get like too much insight into like Hoyd's opinion on things, except for like these few occasions. Right. And my fan, my favorite fan theory that at least for now I still subscribe to is that Hoyd is trying to forge a connection with all sixteen shards and grant or get shardic powers from all of them so that he can ascend and reform. Uh, and I'll say I'm with all 16 
somehow, even with the the previously shattered ones. Um, so that would that would play well into that theory that Hoyt is spending the millennia trying to correct a mistake yeah. that he regrets now. Hmm. I guess I haven't thought about it too much because it's it's so far out that mostly in like oh, I'll glean things as we go along, but in general, it's like. I feel like I know the important part where it's like there was one godlike power that was all Nasium and they split it into 16 parts and we're slowly getting drips and drabs of who those 16 parts are. Mm. What was the, uh, I guess like we could, what was the other shard that was mentioned? Because I think someone wrote in a note that there was a new shard dropped. Was that Fate or? Whimsy. Whimsy, so, okay. Yes, Fate is the other one though because... Yeah, whimsy was just a very passing mention. I think in it, it was among the first four chapters that he released as sample chapters. So we've known the name of that shard since last March or whatever the, when the Kickstarter happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nothing else was told about whimsy, so we know nothing other than that is a name. But fate was an interesting one because fate. Uh, I don't know if. I can't recall if you guys did text or audio, but fate was capitalized <laughs> um, every time that Hoyd brought it up there in the, the stretch of chapters where they were getting rain on the Crimson Sea and were almost dying. And, you know, fate tempted or brought the rain back to them. Fate caused it to just miss them, that sort of thing. So it was played up yeah. as if it could have been a shard potentially, even though Hoyd said it wasn't. Uh, but it was also maybe just Hoyd giving life to the chance encounter to kind of make his story sound more interesting also. Uh, I did read the text mostly first, but I didn't pick up on his capitalized or if I saw it that way, it's just like, Oh, okay. We're talking about, you know, the fate type of thing. Not like, Oh, this is our fate. (laughs) Mm. Right. And we've only got two shards. I think that aren't named. So like, we, it could be fate, but that'd be quite the the way to drop one of our only two remaining ones that we don't know the name of. So yeah, that, let's. I want to be like simmering on that for like a while now. <laughs> I'm gonna be like in my car, being like, hmm. Right, fate would be a great chartic intent. I think, yeah, it it fits with everything else. It seems like. Ah. <laughs> Uh, so, so since Mark kind of brought that one up and I kind of dove in on it, Matt, what is uh, another greater piece of the Cosmere at large that piqued your interest here in this book? Uh, I guess to tie things into our Easter egg discussion a bit more, um, the Midnight Spores is one that I was mm-hmm. like, ooh, because as soon as they do, like, we create creatures and everything else, it's like, you've heard that before. It's like, I actually had to open up Way of Kings a few days after I read it to be refreshed by memory. And I was like, yeah, they're the, one of the flashbacks in the Way of Kings. The Dalinar is defending, you know, uh, this woman and her daughter from Midnight Essence creatures. And I was like, all right, so that's obviously Aethers, but where did the Aethers stuff come from for Roshar? Like, could it have been this planet? Because they mentioned it as a backwater. Or was it an, another Aether planet? Or were the Aethers somehow closer to Roshar at one point? So, I like that connection. 
and everything. I was like, oh, this is finally have know what that midnight essence really is in that flashback and where it might have come from. Could the yeah. unmade be related to the aethers at all? Or are those just like strictly spren that have been broken for lack of a better term? Right. We don't know for sure. So it's um Reshafir uh is the the unmade that is tied to the Midnight Essence who Shalon confronts in uh the third book, Oathbringer. Um, you know, deep within the tower or whatever. because uh, it's it's releasing Midnight Essence to protect itself and like copycat murders and crimes and stuff. Um and yeah, I agree. Like I don't know what we don't know what the unmade are, but in the lost metal, and I we talked pre-show that like I don't remember the names of most of the characters in this book. I definitely don't remember the name of the character in Lost Metal, but the 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 member of the Ghost Bloods that uses the the Rosite ether. Twin Soul. Twin Soul, thank you. Yeah. He like communicates with his aether. Like there there is some sort of connection that he has with the being that is providing him these magic powers, right? That like he he can see what's on the other side of things because this this being that he's talking about that's granting him these is telling him what he's seeing. He's actually in communication. So I wonder if Reshafir was one of these beings that's controlling Aethers as well that Odium somehow got to Roshar and corrupted. Or or if maybe just Midnight Essence can be used elsewhere. Like I have no idea. But it is interesting that that we did get that connection and see that these are the same things we saw in Stormlight. Or did the Odium just see something useful that the Aethers were doing and copy it? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. definitely possible. But yeah, and I think the book even talks a bit about with the Aethers on this planet versus the Aether we saw with Twin Souls that mm-hmm. they're they're more usually symbiotic. Right. And this this planet they're more parasitic. And that so the aethers on the moons that are dropping these spores, it could just be something with them or could be something else entirely. So there's hit more questions coming with, I guess with that, like did something happen to these particular aethers? Are they offshoot of the other, the other ones that like that twin soul has. Hmm. Right. And to get even crazier in the stormlight connections, it's a Luhel bond instead of a Nahel bond with oh, the aethers right. to yep. people versus the spren to a person. And, you know, this one seems to be a strictly physical realm to physical realm connection, whereas maybe the Nahal Bond is more cognitive to physical. Um, maybe so, yeah, we'll a lot other of bonds interesting get named. connections. What's that? Like, maybe we'll get some other named bonds with, like, the uh, Sixth of Dusk and the Aviars. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe there's a, a spirit bond or, you know, spirit to spirit bond in some capacity as well or... Who knows? There, that that the the midnight aether being something that we've seen before is definitely opened a lot of questions to me that I don't think I would have had <laughs> if it was just the other spores that we saw out there in the wild. All right, Mark, how about you? You got any any other big ones jumping out? Uh, I liked all the stuff with Scadrial in general. There was some really cool. I mean, I. I like stupid grinned for some reason, no reason why, when Ulam was a Chandra. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why. I just, I, I really, 
I kind of like if if Condra take on like a Hoid like um place in stories where they just like show up and they're being weird and all. I I'm all for it, and I think this was a very fun Condra character. I also really enjoyed the dragons and the implication that uh they've for those who have read Dune, they're kind of like the Bene Gesserit in that they've like seeded um religions yeah. and stuff about so like part of me is like oh what 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 have they planted in roshar maybe or like where you know where do they have their like hooks in skadriel because now i'm going to kind of be on alert uh so i kind of enjoyed uh that setup it could also be biases too like maybe hoid is just like very anti-dragon for all we know <laughs> um but i just enjoyed that we got kind of like a setup as to who they are uh, so that we can kind of like be on the lookout in future stories. Yeah, it was cool getting to see a dragon finally and dragon steel from, you know, in a book. Oh, yeah, dragons. I forgot about the dragon steel. Yeah. It's like, uh, you know, maybe we had gotten words of Brandon about it before, but I didn't know that up until reading this, that dragon steel was the, the in universe term for like the, the metal that creates the horns and spikes and claws and stuff on a dragon. Um, so that was a cool reveal. And then the dragon who, uh, I will not attempt to be the first person to pronounce his name here. He seemed to have awakening potentially like maybe a thousand breaths worth of awakening to be able to, to make a cloth do his command without actually uttering a command. So that would be at least 10th heightening. So interesting to see that maybe the dragons not only seeded their religion around, but also wouldn't got some bits of power kind of like Hoyd was trying to do also before, you know, diving to the bottom of the ocean to do whatever weird research they're doing. Makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed that. Yeah. So, oh, sorry. I was just saying, it makes a lot of sense for them with the, obviously he's going with the very long lifespan if their dragons aren't outright immortal, that they would, uh, take a very long view of things and try to sociologically engineer things or apply some sort of foundation mentality. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So to, to go back onto your uh, Skadriel bit there, like the two or well, I guess maybe three main pieces of information we've got is that Sazed released the Chandra from his service at some point in the not super distant past from where this story is being told. So and definitely, then they got weird. And then they got weird. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, how long did it take you to to realize that Ulam was a Chandra in the in the book? I think when he made like some joke about when when he starts talking about like getting people's eyes and skull, like because it was very much like um, Milan, you know, saying mm -hmm. like you know, no offense, but like when you die, I'd really love your you know your yeah. nice facial structure. Uh. I think his his skin tone threw me off because he very much is, looks like a zombie. Is kind yeah. of yeah. Like, so I was like, huh. And then when they mentioned like, kind of just his desire to like hoard body parts, I was like, okay. <laughs> I, and then the name kind of felt uh, contrary. Yeah, yeah, and he, you know we we meet him in one of the era two Mistborn books. Like he's mentioned and like just talks with Milan a bit. Um. But I didn't remember that, you know, obviously the, oh, the name didn't, didn't yeah, ring a bell for me. Uh, but then yeah. the other big piece for me was that when he mentions Kelsier, 
a bit in there, he uses present tense, you know, talking about, you know, somebody that he disagrees with <laughs> on something there <laughs> as a, so that leads me to believe that unless that, cause I don't think Sanderson would be like intentionally misleading um, that Kelsier is still out alive and kicking it here way into the space age, which is exciting to, to hear. Yeah. I think Kelsier might be, en- might be end game just cause like he represents like, an ends to a means or the ends justify the the means justify the ends. Mm-hmm. And I think if you create another character that does that, it might get redundant. And yeah, so I'm I'm not terribly uh surprised and I'm kind of happy that it's confirmed more or less that uh he'll he'll be around. Yeah. So before we get into your last note there, Matt, my last one in this this bullet point section is the same thing that I brought up in our last episode, which is cell is like, what in the world is going on with cell and their magic systems? Uh, it's been so long since we have seen, you know, them doing anything. And now we've got two Cosmere novels in a row with like full on Elantrian magic unlocked. You know, she's got a map of the world in her rocket ship there so that, you know, she, she can forge a connection to this planet and do all of her, fancy magic she is powerful enough that the dragon was actually i don't know if necessarily afraid but wasn't worth getting tangled up with uh if he didn't need to um and and she's one of the same people that was out there however many thousands of years ago trying to to snag preservation shard in mistborn secret history she was one of the members of that expedition through the shadesmar so uh I'm very excited to read Elantris 2 at some point and 3. He said he's in his state of Sanderson that they will probably be put out here alongside the Mistborn era book. So it won't be that long before we actually do start getting some interesting insight back into Cell. And I am very excited for it, even though I think it's probably my least favorite Cosmere novel at this point. Um, I'm very excited to go back and see what 20 years later Brandon writing can look like on that world mm-hmm. yep i agree especially since at least when they were just rediscovering elantrian magic like they had very well developed spells and we saw a little bit lost metal like oh yeah they can they can still do that they they just have a lot of knowledge about how their magic works mm-hmm. And they temporarily lost it for a while, but yeah, one that easily be like, oh, we have very high functioning magic to <laughs> bring out all of this stuff. That is doesn't seem as limited as uh, what Scadriel or Roshar can do. Right. Yeah, I draw something in the air, and I can do basically whatever I want. Is kind of what it seems like <laughs> to us on the outside at this point. Yeah, awesome. very more traditional wizard magic. Like, I will write the right spell and get the effect that I want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so what was your last bullet point there, Matt? Uh, so, listening to the book again, um, I was very curious about the Legend of the 13th Spore, what everyone thought about that. Because it reminded me a lot of um, the 13th Metal in Mistborn. 
I was like, is this hinting that there really are 16 Aethers? Like there are 16 medals and that 16 is significant in the Cosmere? Or is this Brandon trying to throw the community a curveball to be like, here, go think about this for a while. <laughs> Maybe mm. throw us off track on some things. It I was kind of a... Yeah, it was a very small piece when Tress was first talking to Fort and Anne. It was like maybe their second interaction with all three of them, where Anne, where Fort was explaining about the twelve, or Anne or Fort was talking about the twelve C's and what the different spores were, and yeah, it was Anne telling telling Tress, and then Fort interrupted to be like. There are, there are actually 13 spores. And she's like, there are not 13 spores. And it's like, well, there's a legend of a 13th spore. And she's like, no one can even agree what color bone spores are. <laughs> They're black or white or both. And I was like, hmm. okay. It's interesting. That makes sense, though, that maybe if there's only 12 moons, that there wouldn't be all 16 aethers, if that's the case. Or is this a... Maybe there's a way to mix spores, since we have a black spore with the midnight essence. And there just wasn't a white one mentioned in right. the 12 that there are. <coughs> so you know, there, there could be, like, Tress's planet could be where the spore is mm -hmm. from, right? Because there's, there's 12 moons, and then there's the planet itself, I think. It's true. So maybe like underneath all of that, uh, mm. I guess we don't know why the Aethers are like violently um, dropping spores like uh, onto the planet. Yeah, I can't take any credit for for crafting this theory. This is one hundred percent one that I read. Um, but whether or not it is an Aether or just functions like one, there was some thought that maybe the white sand um, from the the white sand. Uh, novel and graphic novel could potentially be what they're talking about as the 13th Aether as, because, you know, it's Bavadin, um Ambition there, uh, another one of her um, avatars on that planet, so it's not necessarily entirely her, but it, she could have been trying to create some power that mimicked the Aethers, and, you know, they interact with water a bit, it's white when it's fully powered up from the sun and then turns black. So that would be maybe why you can't, nobody can agree on whether it's white or black. And the sand is close enough to an aether spore that maybe, but uh, that's another one of those that who knows, but I liked the theory. It, it all fit halfway well together. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. I like that. Yeah. That's really good. It would fit with what they were talking about very, really well. And it easily could have been something someone mentioned something off world, and the legends just started sprouting up in planet, and they don't right. even know have the idea of the concept of white sand, so they related it to what they know. Exactly. So yeah, it might not be an aether, but it's just close enough that they call it one, like how everybody on Roshar calls every bird a chicken because they just don't, <laughs> <laughs> they don't they don't know any better. It's, it's maybe kind of like that. So yeah, that is that is interesting. So. Another thing that was very prevalent in this book were the illustrations 
Um, and, and obviously a lot of Sanderson books recently have had a lot of beautiful illustrations, both end pages and maps and, you know, Shalon's sketchbook and, and what, uh, the maps and, and everything from our favorite wandering <laughs> folks with Chris and Nas out there and everything. But this one had a lot of art, even compared to other Sanderson works. And I thought most of it was, was pretty good and actually added a lot to my, my reading experience of this book, which isn't always the case with, with art in books where I kind of like to picture things in my head versus getting to see them drawn out on the page. Was that a, a similar thought for either of you? Yeah, I, I enjoyed most of them. I know one of the early ones I kind of rolled my eyes at a little bit because it was like Tress and Charlie sitting together having their conversation. Uh-huh. Uh, Tress's expression was a little over the top. <laughs> yes. I, it was back the most earlier, struck drawing I've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah. Because, like, I guess it fits in with the campiness of the story, but I was like, okay. Was like, I hope the other ones are better. And then. The uh, the one later where Captain Crow is catching the bullet with her her vine aethers, or the vine aethers are catching the bullet for her to protect her. It's like, all right, that was really cool. <laughs> it's like I had I had an image in my head too, but that one fits really really well and it looked really really nice. Even seeing it black and white on my Kindle. Yeah, I like that one a lot. My my two favorite. Uh, the first one is the the tower. You know, seeing the tower and then seeing the tower as a spaceship taking off. <laughs> um, I 100% did not put two and two together on that one until I saw the drawing. Like, she was calling things in her tower her bridge. You know, there were automated doors. There was basically, a, you know, I don't know what level of magic slash AI was built into the spaceship. Was it a, a Seon living in there or a Spren or was it just actually advanced AI? I have no idea, but talking like I never would have put two and two together that her tower disappeared because it took off into space. And this was a space age story. And except for the drawing being there. Did, <laughs> did either of you catch on where we were <laughs> in the Cosmere before I did? Um, think so, mostly because they talked about people visiting from the stars. Oh, that is right. That is true. And I was like, and so when they showed the tower, I was like, oh, that looks like a rocket. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I think I, I clued into the Hoids uh, from the stars because it made me feel like um, it just took me back to Six of the Dusk. Uh, but, the, but the illustration of the tower did still throw me off. I was like, what a weird looking building and even and i even was like yeah it's like, like they talk about how sterile the walls are i think mm-hmm. and like that should have been a giveaway too and uh, but yeah uh i didn't really um clue into i i even think i was okay with it being a spaceship not even just like a rocket ship and then when i turned the page and i saw the illustration it, it, it made me chuckle mm-hmm. yeah the the other one which i just very much appreciated was the the battle between uh, you know, Hoyd and, and Rena in the ship where he's rocking his Birkenstocks and sandals and short shorts and Hawaiian shirt. Uh, but his Hawaiian shirt has Marowil flowers on it. You know, the blue flowers from Mistborn that oh, Sazed created for for Mara, Kelsier's wife, um, are, are the flowers on his shirt, which I thought was a, a beautiful Cosmere nod there. 
Huh, I didn't I'm I'm looking at that now. That is awesome. Yep, same little blue flower. So I, I love that. Uh those are my two favorite art pieces for for those reasons. That kind of implies where uh you know also where where Mistborn is at this point, you know, if it kind of helps explain to why Hoyt has like clothes like from our universe, basically, like in a treasure island setting. Uh, you know, so like I guess he had he he packed a bag when he left Scadrial last, and it included this uh, Hawaiian shirt. Yeah, that's funny. I appreciate. I love that. If that is the case, that Scadrial got faster than light technology and stuff, and was still catching up to where we're at in like the '90s for fashion. Mm-hmm. The differences in which things move, I guess. <laughs> uh, you know, we mentioned this now, and I'm realizing looking at our notes that we we all three talked about it a lot during discussion of the book but not in the podcast notes here but we all kind of maybe came to a agreement that hoyd was probably talking to somebody from like the six of dusk planet is who he's telling the story to like maybe not agreement as like a hundred percent but that seems like a, a halfway decent guess as as to the person hoyd is sitting down and talking to yeah, it was actually the piece of evidence you had cited where he had was talking to whoever is like, I know you want to hear about so and so sailed around the world without an AVR or something like that. Uh I've just listened to that today and I was like, Oh, okay, that's where that is. Like, yeah, okay, I could see how that's probably someone to in the Six of Dusk world. Because not probably not many people are going to be that impressed with someone sailing around the world without an AVR or care about AVRs that much, unless they, they became really prevalent throughout the Cosmere. Mm-hmm. Right. And the other piece of evidence was like he mentioned, uh, and like both of you were mentioning there with me <laughs> not catching on uh, that. They were talking to us about spaceships, like the ones that visited your world. Uh, and Brandon has read a couple sample chapters from the sequel to Sixth of Dusk, where there are Rasharan and Scandrian rocket ships out and about in the world. So that would also fit well with somebody knowing what a spaceship is and knowing what an AVR is. Kind of helps us narrow it down a little bit. It's definitely the shortest leap. Like I, I was thinking Rashar yeah. for a little bit, but I feel like you have to do some stretching to to make it work. And like the mention of the AVR and spaceships, so far really, you know, curveball if it's something else other than those two. I think someone mentioned uh, Braze. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and who knows what Braze is like at that? You know, at this point in the Cosmere too. So who who knows? That's a that's a wild card, I guess. I think Braze came up when we were discussing if this was a world, brand new world or world that was already established. And mm-hmm. I had forgotten that Brandon had already said it's a brand new world. Right. Lumar, I think. Yep. Lumar. Lumar. Yeah. And then uh, the chapter icons. Matt, you were the one that kind of brought our attention to this one too, right? Right. Because uh, on Reddit, I saw someone had made a GIF of the different chapter headings all strung together. And I didn't notice it at all when I was reading it on my Kindle, but uh, when they're in the different seas, the chapter headings all match the sea they're in, and they grow out as you progress through the chapters. And so, um, 
forget which subreddit, but it's one of the Brandon Sanderson subreddits. It might even be our Brandon Sanderson. They posted the GIF, and it's amazing to watch it just grow out each one and to go from the Verdant Sea to the Crimson Sea to the Midnight Sea with each one. Yeah, very cool. I, I appreciate, you know, even if we're not getting the little three sentences before the chapter starts that all tie together, we're still getting a little bit of an Easter egg with the art around the chapter number. Uh, mm-hmm. That's something to look out for before we start reading. Well, now it's also got me on alert for the other books this year to be like, what else are they going to hide with the art here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good call. Put together with the Chiffered Teddings and such. So that pretty much gets us to the end of what we had bulleted out here. Was there anything else on Tress that we, we didn't get to discuss that either of you wanted to to toss around or, or bring up? Uh, I'll just say I had this in my personal notes, like just when I finished the book and, uh, what I'm about to say, I say this as somebody who, uh, has no disability, but, uh, I think his handling of Fort was, I would say a, a, it was nice to have a main character who was deaf and is hearing or, or, and his disability not being an impairment, like him being deaf, never came up as like a plot device other than like the technology he was using, but like it was never um, to his detriment. Right. Uh, and and I, I, I don't know. I thought I, it was kind of like people in the LGBTQ community have mentioned like, you know, sometimes they just like, like a character is, is gay and that's that, like it doesn't have to be what they're about. And I feel like that's how Fort was handled. Like Fort is deaf and he uses a piece of technology to communicate and that's that. And now let's move on and kind of discuss who he is as a character. And I thought that was, uh, really refreshing and something he does. I know Sanderson is, is a fan of doing, but he doesn't do it too often. So I was surprised and happy to see it here. Yeah. Yeah. It did that stand in contrast a little bit to Don Shard where obviously being told from Risen's point of view, the, the slight hindrance obviously of not having function in her legs comes up a lot more because she's mm-hmm. you know, on a boat and an Island trying to, trying to do all these things where Fort, yeah, it's very much still in his element, functioning it greatly. And I think it was kind of a nice thing to see, you know, just how crushing that would be to lose your technology in a communicative way there. Like that was probably the most heartbreaking moment in the book for me was when Bro broke his board. Because you can just see like, you know, they don't have sign language or anything on this planet. Like this piece of technology was what made him able to you know, live his life exactly the way he wanted to on this boat. So for for her to be able to procure another one from the dragon was a, a nice moment for for the story, I think, as well. So they might actually have sign language on the planet because when Huck is talking to Tress when he goes ashore, I think he like he's just like talking about his day and he says that Fort and his family were like oh, throwing strange hand signs right. at each other. That is right. Okay. Good call. Which is still a good, which is still a good insertion. It's like, oh, cool. Then it's not just this like gimmick. Um, but to your point about the the breaking, if that if that's ever on screen, I will cry. Like that's gonna <laughs> be uh, gut wrenching. Yeah, yeah. This uh, I definitely was wondering is like how how is that going to work? What like 
he had to trade it from someone who was off planet. And just uh, the dragon had one in the back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And again, you know, we've talked about it a few times now, but connection being so important to the story where like, obviously we have bits and pieces of connection, capital C being mentioned uh, throughout the novels, uh, primarily with the ire trying to forge a connection with their special device to Scadrail so that they could possibly claim the shard when preservation died. Um, but this was definitely the most heavy book on that with both Hoyd's entire goal being having the sorceress grant him connection enough that he could have Elantrian magic. And then this board was mentioned that it was connection uh, to his spirit web and the rest of the spirit web there basically giving is how it worked, I guess. So it was more magic than technology in that regard. Well, also this did a lot to predict the text for him. Mm -hmm. And we saw it misfunction that one time when he was like fixing socks. Right. Oh, he, yeah. <laughs> he's tight. I forget what exactly he was typing the trust, but he was going to ask about something and it set, predicted socks for him. And he's like, it's not perfect. Obviously, nope. he'd been working on the socks, so it was thinking, oh, it's related to what he's thinking about, so. <laughs> All right, so, yeah, let's let's go ahead and dive into our, our secondary topic here um, that that we didn't get to last time, but I think would be kind of interesting, and that would be you know, all three of us are pretty heavily involved in the Lord of the Rings card game community. Uh, you know, tabletop in general is a, a pretty growing hobby even still now. And Sanderson doesn't have a ton of tabletop games out there. Uh, so kind of a brief discussion of the ones that are out there, but then maybe a, a pitch from each of us of what we would actually like to see. Um, so for, for what's currently existing, we have... Stormlight Call to Adventure, which is a, a reskin, basically, of a Call to Adventure, a game from Brotherwise Games. We have Mistborn House War, The Reckoners, in terms of, like, other tabletop board games, and then there is a Mistborn RPG. Uh, so have either of you played any of these four Sanderson tabletop games before? I have not. I have, I've played three of the four. Okay. So, and actually, I own all of them. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so, I own uh, just the retail version of Call to Adventure. I did back the Mistborn House War Kickstarter. And Reckoners, I picked up after the Kickstarter because it was just so pricey at the time. Because I think the Kickstarter was like 100 bucks or 80 bucks or something. And my brother-in-law actually keyed me into the a special that was at, going on at Miniature Market. I picked it up for much less than that. <laughs> so, uh, and Mistborn RPG I own because uh, as part of, part of the Kickstarter rewards for House War, they threw in PDFs of the Mistborn RPG. Okay. So I got to read the little short story about the 11th medal in there, but I have never played it. And part of that is due to my experience with the Wheel of Time RPG that came out um, in the early 2000s. So it was set in like using D&D 3.5 rules. And I played a few sessions of that with some friends. And while the story there was interesting, 
like it was very frustrating to make a character because you couldn't quite replicate characters without several levels of stuff and even then certain things didn't work quite like they did in the books and the story being told you know you had to be off to the side a bit you had sure. to all be very minor characters and everything else and i probably would have played it to the end if my friend had kept running it but it wasn't a very satisfying experience compared to playing a regular tabletop rpg where your party is the main main characters in the story you're all driving it together and it doesn't feel like that with didn't feel like that with the real time rpg but so for a lot of things i don't i i steer away from intellectual property rpgs for that reason but maybe this board is different but i just have never tried it for that it's it's funny we i played dnd a bit through like middle school and early high school with friends, but that's my only experience with tabletop role-playing games until just a couple of weeks ago, we did a one shot of the one ring RPG uh, Mark uh, lore mastered for, for a lot of the cardboard of the rings crew. And I thought the familiarity with the world really helped me get into it. And I was totally okay being Rora Mac brandy buck, some like unknown hobbit from the appendices. Uh, just because it was kind of fun to role play in Middle Earth, so I think it would almost be easier for me to to dive into a setting that I am familiar with, even if I'm not like doing the thing. You know, I'm not taking the ring anywhere. I'm just going to try to steal some map from the Shire. You know, like <laughs> it, it it really worked for me on that level. I will um, say, yeah, yeah, like I would recommend the. For for you, Matt, and just anybody in general, not to make this about the One Ring RPG, but like, uh, like in the text, you they even like kind of describe like this is a challenge. You know, they're like, we understand if you want to be Aragorn and kind of want to like go on a big adventure, and they they even say stuff like, you know, you can do that here. It may not like flow the way you want, and they're you know they're almost saying like maybe try like a different system, uh, and I think that's kind of bold on like a, a design part to just kind of like say you know what like we, we can't have our cake and eat it too and this is maybe the best way you can enjoy tolkien's world uh and so what they do is actually the main characters are often patrons so like with uh eric um you know bilbo was like you know their their quest giver and that's pretty uh entertaining so i would recommend like giving that pdf a read through uh because they they kind of address that that is a problem with these ips especially when you want to like be the characters Oh, maybe, but I don't know. <laughs> you're like, yeah, uh, it's a it's a thing of being a veteran RPG player at this Definitely. point. I've got mm-hmm. a group that we've been playing for like we we've been playing regularly for like the last six or seven years. Like we oh, we know yeah, our okay. system we that we like to play, and you know we've got it all kind of down where we feel comfortable with things. And so oh, then ignore everything. Yeah. I say. Don't, don't rock the boat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. So if, if you're like me and you just want to steal some spoons and joke with some friends, maybe this is yeah. to look, maybe something to look yeah. into as a, an entry level RPG yeah. where you don't have to use your imagination quite as much building the world. Yeah, and I haven't really read into like the mechanics of the Mistborn RPG, or if I did, it's been so long. I don't remember them. So I can't like weigh in, with my veteran RPG tabletop experience to be like, oh, it's interesting or not. Like, I couldn't tell you anymore. Like, 
uh, I read it purely for I want to hear some more of the setting stuff because I I know at least Brad had a little bit input or at least wrote the story mm-hmm. let them use the eleventh metal story in there and that's all I really enjoyed it for so um kind of moving on to the other ones though uh I guess I'll kind of start with Stormlight. Since it's I, kind of a I agree with all of the things you're about to say here based on your bullet yeah. points. So yeah. Yeah, Stormlight being the the lightest one and the reskin, like it looks really pretty. The insert's really functional in it, uh, for storing the game and everything else. And the the runes that you use to do the main actions, like they're quality. They're fun to throw around and such, but the gameplay is just kind of blah. It's it's a light intro game, so I get it. Uh, I probably would have enjoyed it much more 10, 15 years ago. <laughs> but the card, the cards look great and everything else. It's just like the co-op is so easy. And even the stuff that you're building towards to be like, all right, I finally got the Knight's Radiant end goal thing here. What can I do with it? Oh, not a lot. Okay. Most of the, what really I found kind of helps you in the end and facing off against Odium is like building up the little red gem chits that you have to be like, oh, okay, well, if I fail a roll or whatever, I can do something with this to kind of help improve my odds. Or It's been a while since I've played it, but... Yeah, the biggest yeah. issue that it has, for me at least, is that at its base... Uh, Call to Adventure is a very, very light engine building, like tableau building set collection game. You know, so I mean, Mm -hmm. if you've played Ticket to Ride, it's not that different in the terms of like, there are cards out in the rows, and I want to get certain ones onto my board that work with the other ones that I have. So in a competitive game, that is interesting because I might have to make a decision to take a slightly suboptimal card so that you don't get it and score a ton of points. But when you remove that and make it competitive instead, it's just like, oh yeah, no, you should go ahead and take that card. Uh, you need <laughs> it. Uh, and I'll take this one because I need it. And yeah, like you said, like the tension to get powered up to the, the max level that you can be, because you, you can only flip like six coins basically when you fight the end boss no matter what. And getting to the point where you can flip coin six coins is just trivially easy. Like it, it requires yeah. zero effort on any player's part. So it was uh, a big disappointment for me. I've got the deluxe version. Uh, it is beautiful, and so I still have it, even though I I never play it. <laughs> uh, that was one where I was. I ended up being very happy. I skipped on the Kickstarter and the deluxe version on. Yeah, it's like, it's like okay, this is not. Honestly, if we get a better Stormlight game, it probably will end up in the for sale or trade pile or something. The art book was cool. So (laughs) at least I got that, I suppose. And then House War, I have never played. How's that one? So House War, I've played once. And my it's been a few years now. My short recollection of it was just also kind of just okay. Definitely better than the Call to Adventure. But it could also be the number of players we were playing or um, the houses we were playing. It's like one of my friends could easily solve problems on his own without, without needing to make deals to complete them. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, his wife and I ended up having to team up a lot, mostly to keep him from running away f- with the game. Gotcha. And there's supposed to be kind of a timer built in. Uh, I guess I should describe the game a little bit for those who haven't played. In House War, you're playing the different houses of the Final Empire, and problems are arising that are different cards that require different resources to resolve the problem, and the houses that resolve them, depending on, a, depending on how they negotiate, how they get the split of reward, get those additional resources and people and things like that. Uh, you can even get things like ATM. So it's kind of a resource management game, but there's a bit of negotiation because the idea is that these problems are rising fast enough and there's a little track that will be like, oh, well, if too many problems arise, you'll have the uprising happen and then everyone could lose because the people have risen up and deposed the final empire. (laughs) Sure. But it didn't seem like that was too much of an issue until very late in the game. And so there wasn't a lot of the incentive to really team up other than to make sure, you know, try to stay ahead of the other players. And some of that kind of relies on people either paying close attention to be like, oh, okay, we should team up to try and get some of this stuff. So, you know, the third player doesn't take over the game or not, not paying close enough attention to how people are doing and just being like, hey, I've got the right resources to complete this if you help me because you get the resources for that. So, Gotcha. Um, so, yeah. So what I'm getting from here is kind of the ultimate takeaway is it seems like there are not many Sanderson games out there and the ones that are out there are not amazing. Is that a, a well, safe? No, because the last one, oh, the Reckoners, that's right. I really like. And the Reckoners, I think, is the best one, but it's also probably the most, the closest to existing games. Sure. Because it's a, it's a cooperative, which I've heard uh, board, game, board game YouTubers and stuff call like a firefighting game. Because in, mm-hmm. in the Reckoners, um, so the Reckoners stories are all about a world that's just, Filled with supervillains, no superheroes, and so the co- there's a resistance of common people fighting back against them. And so, in the game, you have different districts of uh, the city where they've got little mini bo- little mini supervillain bosses, and you're defeating them to learn about the weakness of the big boss. Uh, Steelheart to take him down eventually. But each district gets things like barricades and enforcers and uh, the supervillains are constantly whittling away the population of the city so you have to send your people around to the different districts to take out the supervillains, take out the enforcers and each uh, character has their own little powers for it. So in that sense it plays a lot like the other cooperative firefighting games like Pandemic or um, Forbidden Island, Forbidden Desert are kind of similar in that because mm-hmm. you have things that are getting, you have obstacles getting in the way of you completing objectives. But it, for kind of being a by the numbers cooperative firefighting game, it fits very well on the theme of the story. 
that's kind of what they do. <laughs> they take out the underling bosses all the while they're trying to learn about Steelheart, what his weakness is, and how they could possibly come up with a plan to defeat him. All the while they're gaining some new equipment, things like formulating their plan to ultimately win. And there's the game has these really the game also is notoriously like overproduced because it was a big huge Kickstarter. Right. I remember there being a lot of plastic and dice and Yes. Yes, because it was one of the first that came out with game trays. So it's really like you open the box, you can pull a lot of this stuff out pretty quickly and get it set up and it's a huge table hog because like the districts are all their own little board um they have little sliding tracks to show what each epic does in their little district they got little figurines and stuff like it could have been much simpler you could have had a single board type of thing you could have had you know you didn't need the miniatures the dice are like Star Wars Destiny sized dice. They're probably twice wow. the size of a normal six sided die. And they're, you know, clear plastic, very nice printed. So they're chunky. <laughs> but it is notoriously overproduced. But like, as far as like, you get it out, you set it on the table. It looks really great. It plays pretty well. It's like I've taught um, uh, my younger brother and his girlfriend to play, I got my dad to play it. Um, so it's, you know, as far as like playability, everything, it's pretty, it's pretty easily done. So you could kind of run through like, okay, this is how our turn works. This is what the bad guys do. And like that gameplay cycle, once you run through a turn and since it's cooperative, you could just kind of be like, let's just start playing. I'll explain things as we go here. And you can kind of figure it out because the dice, you roll them and they, the dice are what actions you get. And you get three rolls, Yahtzee style. So, nice. uh, yeah, yeah. I, I never finished the Reckoner series, so I'm not super plugged in. But that does sound like could be a fun one. Well, and the game only covers the, the stuff in the first book. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. And so it takes the expansion to get into the second book. I still haven't got the expansion because it's still... It was one of those situations where they did the Kickstarter. I was like, I'll wait for it to come to retail. And then they, the retail version is only through their website. And so mm. it's like, and so it's like, okay, like let's them keep the price at what they suggested for retail. And it's like, uh, I like the game, but it's still a game that I only get out maybe once a year. <laughs> so I got to find the right group of people to play it. And that's only recently where i started making more of an effort to be like all right i want to get this to play with people so since this co-op you could play it solo and i did the first time and i was like yeah that was that was fine solo but it's a lot to like set up for one person (laughs) especially for a game that's like it's you know pandemic like where it's like all right I know how this goes. Like I could beat this pretty easily. It's more interesting to get people on board with the idea of it and bring out the really nice pieces and be like, see how cool this game is. So, so moving along from games that do exist to ones that we know are coming, Mark, um, it sounds like there's going to be some sort of mid-weight Stormlight board game, a Stormlight RPG, 
And then given that Brandon is a Magic the Gathering super fan and probably one of their more famous fans, he has said that it seems inevitable that there will be a Cosmere Magic art set in, at some point, much like they're doing with Warhammer and Lord of the Rings and Dungeons and Dragons and whatnot. Are any of those exciting to you as somebody who hasn't played any of the previous Sanderson tabletop things? So I think the the magic one could could be good. I mean, uh, I will say there's a uh, tumultuous debate in the community with like how Wizard slash Hasbro is handling IP crossover. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, go Google any of that stuff if you're interested. But um, Brandon is a big fan of a format called Commander, right? And uh, in in Commander, uh, when you play Magic the Gathering, the Commander variant, you pick a legendary creature as like your commander that you pull out of your deck, and it basically is the representation of your deck. It defines the colors you can use. It's it's very much like how the heroes in Lord of the Rings work, and uh, you know, with Warhammer, they kind of created a bunch of Warhammer cards, but within this contained commander, uh, not even set, but a collection of four decks. And I could see that being really cool uh, where, you know, you could have like the Kaladin deck and the Kelsier deck. And I think, you know, one thing that I've done as a hoarder of card games is it now it seems smarter to have like a, like a battle box so like what could be cool, I think, is like getting like all of these Sanders and Commander decks and like treating it like a board game so that if you know sure. you magic the gather. So that's really cool. Um I do really want like a Sanderson card game. I, I love card games. I like the Game of Thrones card games. So I think I would love to see just something like that where you could kind of experience the characters that way. And I think like a dudes on a map game. And I can only think of Stormlight right now because of all like the the war elements. But a, a dudes on the map kind of like Battle of Five Armies or Blood Rage or stuff like that in the Stormlight universe could be really cool. A War of the Ring board game for Stormlight Archive, maybe like Arc One or the first half, depending on how that ends, could be fun. I don't know, but yeah, that's kind of where where I am. I'm totally okay with a card game and uh, a dudes on a map game. Oh, I see someone wrote about the Stormlight RPG. An RPG book I would love just for like the setting information, just to like read it like a textbook. Like I don't even care if the system is good. I'd love to just like read about <laughs> stuff that he maybe couldn't put into the I guess I could just read the Wikipedias or the Coppermind, but I like having it like in a book with illustrations. Yeah. So so if you could create any Cosmere board game, you said you'd you'd want a card game or a dudes on the map game would be the the two that you'd want. Yeah, and I think cards too because sometimes uh you can get, I feel like dudes on a map, you know, like maybe it's like a cardboard standee or as miniatures that you maybe have to paint. And I think what I like about cards and the Lord of the Rings card game is really good at is you can just have these really stellar illustrations that do all the heavy lifting. Uh, and I'd much rather have a really awesome looking like Dalinar card than a like gray Dalinar mini that I'm never going to paint. Yeah, <laughs> uh, for so sure. I would really love a card yeah. game for that reason. I mean, we have two heralds done by Magali. Uh, already, yes. I mean, can you even fathom a world in which we got like at least Stormlight art for more than just two things? Ugh, I can't. And she's a big incredible. Magic the Gathering artist. So. Well, exactly. That be that would be the most exciting thing for me on the um, Stormlight set would be getting all this great art out there. 
but I say that as somebody who has like not liked any of the Lord of the Rings art that's come out <laughs> previewed from that Magic the Gathering set. So maybe maybe I'd just be disappointed there too. But it's a bit homogenized. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and Stormlight and Cosmere seems a little bit more like high fantasy anime sort of, you know, like I could see like the big action, the fire sword and all these sorts of things working a lot better. Then when I see like Aragorn carrying a flaming sword and a Magic the Gathering picture, I'm like, ugh. Oh, if you give me stop. like Stormlight anime artwork, I, it could. I don't care what kind of game. I I will. I will Be buy all in. A, yes. <laughs> How about you, Matt? Any of those uh, currently in the pipeline games sound interesting? And then what would be your your big Cosmere pitch? Um. So I actually did the poll. I. I was debating between the campaign style game or the midweight board game. I did the midweight board game because I kind of felt like the Cosmere related ones that we had weren't scratching that itch for me. Yeah. And the campaign legacy games tend to sit on my shelf because I can't get people to sit down for a full campaign. <laughs> but who you knows? So maybe if it was campaign legacy, you'd, there'd be a way to play it solo. Um, I guess so. Even though I participated in that poll, I'm still a little shy about another Cosmere board game. Sure, yeah, I'm not gonna be. I will probably buy it, but I'm not going to be eagerly like waiting to hover to to purchase it and stare at my tracking number. And you know what I mean. It'll be something that I'll be interested in, but not have exceedingly high expectations for same here and i guess of those i'm probably more excited about a possible magic gathering set because brandon likes magic gathering so much so i feel like he would make sure that it's good Mm -hmm. (laughs) and i played magic for mm, something like eight years or something regularly and i one of my friends still plays, and so when we get together, we'll play a few games, but that tends to be like once a year at this point, if that. So while well, I kept all my cards, because I don't want to have to have the nightmare of rebuying things, I try not to buy any new cards, but Stormlight would probably get me to buy some cards again in for it. And uh, I guess my ideal tabletop game, probably the more expected answer here is I'd want the co-op LCG. Cause I, that's basically my magic, the gathering experience without the collectability and having to buy random packs and I can play it solo or play it co-op. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, um, it's just much easier to get people to play the co-op games than the competitive ones. Oh, and for I, sure. It's like here we can just play this. It doesn't matter if you know we're teaching or whatever. I don't. We don't have to do like a practice round. We can just play. And if we lose, mm-hmm. not a big deal. We'll just set it up and do it again. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean that'd be my number one pipe dream as well. You know, I I didn't list that as what I'm going to talk about just because I figured somebody else would. But if if you could magic something up and just make it appear, the idea of a more Arkham-y story-based one with some movement or a Marvel Champions-y sort of one where you can have some deck building where, you know, you've got your 
I don't know, your Allomancy cards that you could bring into a deck and your Night Radiant cards with your specific order and those sorts of things just would be incredible. I can't imagine the IP is big enough for us to get something like that, but that would be amazing. <laughs> uh, so, so my number one wish was kind of what Mark was alluding to with the dudes on the map is I would want like a big War of the Ring-esque Shattered Plains war game. I think that would lend itself incredibly well to tabletop where you could do one versus one or maybe one versus many with the the listeners versus the, you know, Alethi people. And you've got, you know, your Sadius camp who has faster bridges, mm-hmm. but maybe takes higher mortality rates and these sorts of things. And your, your Dalinar camp who moves really slow out there, but has two shard bearers that they can put into the field when they get there. And I just think that the idea of needing to use bridges to jump over things in this like very mobile sort of board game to capture chrysalises, you know, and, and these gem hearts and these sorts of things would be a very fun tabletop game. It would probably be like War of the Ring, where I would get to play it like twice ever and it would just sit on myself and I'd be shelf and I'd be dreaming about playing it again. But I, I just feel like that conflict would let it lend itself very well to a tabletop game, you know, from the first two Stormlight book era on the Shattered Plains. Yeah, I have two thoughts about that. One is the the gameplay, I think, would lend itself pretty well to, like, a, the Star Wars Rebellion-type game. Yeah. the listener's location is hidden. Yeah, that's and true. And the Alethi are larger. Ooh, yeah. Um, second one is, I, I'm in the same boat where I thought about the dudes on a map, but I own the the Dune... Uh, board game, not the 1970s version, but it's the remake mm-hmm. from uh, Restoration Games. I got that. I've played it once so far, but I still like. I'm currently making a board game insert for it because I still dream of pulling it out more often to play and really get to know the strategy between six players and everything else for it. Um, but. You know, uh, that's why I was like, I don't think I could do a Stormlight Dudes on the Map games. I kind of have two Dudes on the Map games that I really want to play if people are interested in that type of game. And they got Dune, and then I have Risk 2249 or mm, It's yeah. been too long since I've looked at the box, but like, I like. You really don't need like a those. third one that doesn't get yeah. played. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. No. I, I'm in agreement. I, w- I would never get to play it, but man. That would be cool. Uh, another thing, jumping back to your talking about a Marvel champion style LCG, I could see with the investiture, you'd have the resource cards that you discard. Ooh, they yeah. have to mask the investiture type or whatever to fuel oh, your... That'd be so cool. And then out. you imagine like a neutral, like unchained door in a jar <laughs> eventually that you could get in a later expansion that works for everybody. Or but... it'd be like the basic double resource cards you have a couple that are untyped but then you know for this person you've got your metal vials that are your resource cards and then the other one you've got um you've got the high the high storms coming in to or i guess it would be uh shoot the gems in Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with the stormlight in it so everybody else out there in the world is hoping that Maxine's working on a Netrunner or a Star Wars card game now that she's not on Arkham. This is this is my my hope. Maybe she's <laughs> out there 
reading a whole bunch of Sanderson right now, trying to <laughs> to do trying to get this game right. It's not that's not what's happening. I'm sure of it, but I will hope until we get an announcement as to what she actually is doing there at FFG. You you made yeah. me think of uh, something too, like with the dudes on the map, and then I have a bonus pitch because I was looking at my board game shelf mm-hmm. um, with dudes on a map and going mad to your campaign this is totally we're talking about games you don't get to table this would be one that you would like think about but never play um if you like scope it back out to just like roshar and play with the desolations you could have like a legacy game where you tell your own like history of roshar and watch like the knight's radiance like either do well or you know and versus the fused um and then i looked at my copy of uh mice and mystics which i have not gotten to table in a long time but i know like today a lot of these games like use an actual book instead of boards mm-hmm. um and hoid like a like a storytelling hoid board game like it could be like a whimsical like tress kind of tone but like maybe hoid is the rule book writer i don't know <laughs> or like the scenario presenter would be kind of entertaining uh like he's telling a story but you're playing the scenes out that could be uh entertaining Oh yeah, no, I'd buy all of those in a heartbeat. That sounds great. <laughs> My the secondary pitch I wish I could have put together would have been some kind of engine builder, but I was thinking about I was like I don't know what engine builder would fit with the Cosmere unless we got further down the line where we got more of the magic system hacking to be like here here's how we chain these different investitures together or something like that. Yeah, as we say, wait a while, then certainly you'll have source material. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Well, we've already gone even longer than we went on the first one uh, here tonight, which is <laughs> which is great. I've had a lot of fun discussing this, but it's probably about time for us to wrap it up here. Uh, were there any other thoughts either about Tress or uh, Tabletop or anything we didn't get to that, that either of you wanted to bring up before we call it quits here today? Well, I would say uh, maybe we should revisit this uh, Brandon Sanderson tabletop games topic once I get you two to play uh, one or either the Reckoners or Mistborn House War on Tabletop Simulator. Because I know there are ways to do it for both of those. I've played the Reckoners on Tabletop Simulator. It's not the best implementation, but it's very functional. Yeah, that would be cool. I'd definitely (laughs) be down. How about you, Mark? Any parting shots? Not that I can think of. I'm looking at my notes. Uh, I guess to bring it back to the book, it was a great book. I think it's also maybe the most universal. Like, I want my wife to... Like, I don't care if she doesn't read another Sanderson book at all. Um, but I think it's a book that maybe a lot of Sanderson fans can maybe, like, show it to non-Sanderson fans and at least just, like, have some commonality. Because it's, yes. like it's an easy book to read. Yeah, uh, much shorter, too. A lot less investment than mm-hmm. a mainline novel. Um, but yeah, I really enjoyed it. I think if this is where the rest of the year is going, uh, we're in good hands. And I look forward to another Hoyd narrated story, even if it's going to be a different tone, which might be make it even cooler. Yeah, I think the next book that's coming out is his one non-Cosmere story, right? Uh, yes. coming, the one in April right. is the... The like, handbook thing or... Yeah, the wizard's handbook to survival or whatever which sounds very interesting but uh i'm not sure we'll be back with yeah yeah i'm (laughs) not sure we'll be back with another shard board of the rings podcast for that one uh just since we don't have any ties to the cosmere to talk about but 
but maybe when Secret Project 3 rolls around in June, we can reconvene and uh, and hit up another one of these to, to discuss our thoughts on that book. Definitely. That sounds good. Perfect. Well, thank you to all of you that, that stayed out there with us all the way till, what, hour and 40 minutes or so that we, we went <laughs> talking to Sanderson here tonight. Uh, much like him, who his book's going to be much more than 400,000 pages. We also went a little bit longer than we originally <laughs> thought. But it was fun talking to you, gentlemen. And everybody else, thanks again for joining us, and have a good one. Thanks, everyone. Thanks.